Hello, everybody. Welcome to my show, The Dope Ass Podcast, where I interview dope ass people and we talk about dope ass things on my dope ass podcast. I just said that, but I said it again. Today we have Colleen Bordeaux on the show. She is a just all around amazing person. Um, she has a blog, she is a writer, she leads creative workshops, and she just kind of teaches people how to live their kind of dope ass life, dope ass creative life. Um, through her platform. So I'm so happy that she's joining us today. Uh, she's got so many great um, nuggets of wisdom that she just drops even unknowingly. So I'm just, I'm excited to have her on and um, thank you for joining us, Colleen. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us, like, I, I definitely want to talk about our, new, like, our state and where we are and all that, but tell us a little bit, tell my listeners about yourself, um, like your background, your professional background and your personal background and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So I have worked for 10 years in management consulting, focused on what we call human capital, which is a term I don't really love, but it basically looks at the human side of business. So everything from culture to how we manage talent to how we engage people in their jobs day to day to kind of get the most um, kind of most productivity out of them and make sure we're all aligned to the same kind of mission. Um, so I've been doing that and also um, have a background in print editorial journalism. Like the fact that I work in management consulting is kind of a fluke <laughs> because I probably should have ended up being like a writer or an art teacher. But I um, have been freelance writing for my entire career, kind of as a, a side hustle, a way to keep my creativity alive in a very different way than I've been able to cultivate in my kind of day-to-day -day job. Um, so kind of freelanced for lifestyle sites like Refinery29, and eventually kind of recognized that the tone and style was not really true to me and started blogging a personal blog a long time ago and um, grew that readership on my own and wrote a book just for my readers uh, last year that kind of took on a little bit of a life of its own. So it's been super fun. And I'm, I'm on a sabbatical for six months for my job right now to kind of really uh, hunker down on that creativity topic. Oh, that's awesome. And so um, I definitely want to get to the book, but tell me what you do like for, in your day-to-day -day, day, day job. You work for the Institute Art Institute, right? Or you? Yeah. So on my sabbatical, I um, am working with the Art Institute of Chicago and with the Second City kind of on two tangential projects, but they're both feeding um, another kind of project. There's like multiple um what do you call it? Plates and spinning in this sabbatical. But with the Art Institute, I am working with their Ryan Learning Center, which has this huge endowment that looks at how do we develop skills like creativity, communication, empathy in um, the community in Chicago. And what I've been doing in my day job and consulting is really looking at how technology is rapidly changing the way that we work. And it's taking on things that like our brains, Andrea, do today that we would be paid by a company to do, like bots and cognitive computing are now starting to take on that capability. So this idea of what should humans be focused on to continue to add value in the years to come, all kind of hone in on this bucket of skills that um, some people call it like social emotional skills, but it things, it's things like creativity, empathy, listening, problem solving, and things that the art world has been emphasizing for years and years and years, but you and I didn't grow up being taught how to, you know, cultivate those skills in ourselves. Oh, that's awesome. So how do you teach people that? It's a really great question. And I'm learning more and more, more yeah. and more about it. But I think some of the, the foundational um, principles behind these skills are 
really things that we already have within us. It's kind of getting some of the blockers out of the way. So on the creativity topic, which is really where I've been focusing the most, most of my time, I think it's like helping people challenge their own belief systems that, you know, we have always heard these stories of these elusive creative geniuses um, that just were born with this innate talent that the rest of us don't have. And that's simply not true. You have kids, right? If you think about your kids, they will color and make pasta necklaces and like they're creating all the time and have so much fun doing it. And we all have a story like that from when we were kids. And the reason we lose it is because we start to absorb judgment and fear from our external environment. And we feel like if we don't create something that's perfect and worthy, then we're, we shouldn't even bother. So it's kind of getting people over those fears and getting back to that creating for the sake of the process, not for the value of the output. Um, so that's kind of like one of the places where you start. That's really cool. And to do that, do you find, is it like a group setting type of thing? Is it like writing prompts for people? Like what have you found is like the best way to get people to maybe, first of all, they have to identify what what those blocks are, but then how do you get them to sort of look at those? Yeah, great question. So I think there's so many different ways to do it, but one of the um, one of the curators I'm working with right now has a great frame for this. And he says you have to throw people off kilter, meaning like put them in an environment where they're not used to kind of operating and give them some structure, but also help them kind of catch themselves by surprise. And one activity that he does to um, teach empathy within the kind of walls of the museum is get a group together. He does this with MBA students. So you think about like your black suit business guy that like, you know, doesn't want to laugh and put him in an art museum where they're uncomfortable and he'll have them get into a circle. And then every other person steps into the circle and then they close that inner circle and then turn around and face the outer circle. And they make them stand (laughs) and look into the person's eye and long enough to register their eye color and then rotate to the next person mm. and then kind of quizzes them kind of walking around on who has what eye color. And he used that as like foundational empathy that if you don't look at a person long enough to register their eye color, then you actually aren't practicing empathy as a skill. And I thought wow. that was a really cool way to do it. That is really cool. Um, in my master's degree in spiritual psychology, we did something a little more intense where you actually look at the person in the eye for an extended period of time. And I have to say, like, it's like it goes from like, okay, I see this person to, okay, now I'm staring at them and this is really uncomfortable. Okay, this is like really uncomfortable. Like, I want to look away. And then something happens and you sort of start to see the like humanity in the other person. And it is like, it's super intense, like super intense. So like five minutes, like how long of a time were you having to stare? Probably. So we would do this exercise. We actually called it soul gazing. I know that's like so woo woo, but um, (laughs) I'm so woo woo. So I'm open. Yeah. (laughs) So it was probably like 30 seconds a person. So basically what we do and this is so like in the in the times of social distancing, it's things like this that, you know, I think about, oh, wow, what if we can ever do that again? But you kind of like hold the person's hands like this and kind of stare and probably like 20 to 30 seconds and then a bell rings and you do it to the next person. Wow. So you find somebody else. And I have to tell you, like by the end of that exercise, a lot of the times people are just crying because you just it is an empathy thing and you start to see yourself in that person. And I think you can achieve the same thing with like a photo of like a younger version of yourself. Like if you look at like a younger photo, 
Um, but it really is crazy. And I'd, I'd love to know like the science of it. Cause I'm sure there's, there's something there, you know, as far uh, as like, um, yeah, but that's really interesting. I, that's like a, I feel like that exercise is like a light version of that. Like f- most people could handle eye color. <laughs> most, yeah, exactly. But like deep staring and holding yeah. hands, I think would be like the, like next, yeah. it'd be like the 2.0 version Totally, of totally. And t- so talk to me about like your love for art and like where that started. And I took a, like back in college, I took an art therapy class. So I've always been kind of interested in like art therapy and how that sort of all ties together. Can you speak yeah, to that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, and by the way, I feel like we could have just like a separate conversation on spiritual psychology and art therapy and that whole woo-woo topic. Totally, like, where, yeah. where have you been all my life? My my conversations <laughs> often go woo-woo with the right people. <laughs> I say my, my husband like gives me a hard time because he's like, Colleen, you don't do small talk. You just like cut straight to deep talk and like not everybody can handle that. Totally. <laughs> um, totally. So, okay. So the question was um, interest in art and kind of yeah, art just... therapy, that whole mm-hmm. topic area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, I have always been somebody who loved visual arts, um, painting, drawing, all of that. When I was in middle school, I was a huge nerd, like bowl cut, braces, glasses, carried a violin case. And I was taking painting classes with middle-aged women <laughs> by myself. And that was like what it. I did for fun. So that's always just been a like a hobby of mine. And I, I went into undergrad as an art history and studio arts double major and ended up switching into print editorial journalism because I felt as though I wasn't being like fully tapped and continued to take art classes and invest in that on my kind of own. And I travel 80% of my time for Deloitte, my full-time job in consulting. And I have always carved out space in my schedule. Like some people like to do a yoga class. I will take an hour to go to the Met and like power walk through the galleries and my colleagues who have free memberships to the Art Institute uh, up until just recently thought that was so weird. Like, how can you have fun in an art museum? And that I remember like that catching me off guard. And I recognized that there's so many people who view the arts as kind of like elitist and stuffy and they don't know how to engage hmm. or have fun. And so I've, you know, recognizing that the skill group needs to be a focus of mine on sabbatical, but there's also this opportunity to help people re-engage with art in a really fun way that we haven't really talked a lot about. Like art is for everyone. It's not for like snobby people with millions of dollars. Um, It's for me, it's for you, it's for kids. And you don't have to know history or facts. You can literally like walk up to a painting, know nothing about it and feel nothing and hate it. And like, that's a valid experience. And we don't like emphasize it enough. Mm -hmm. Do you have tips for anybody that like, what would you say to me if I was like, didn't know anything about art and wanted to go to the art museum like are there certain things you would tell me to look for like or notice how I'm feeling or what would you say to someone who is just super intimidated to even walk into an art museum yeah so I love to tell people art cardio like think about a workout class like you show up all the time to just a random class that you sign up for and you don't know what's happening right Mm -hmm. in a workout class you're used to having a guide right in a museum you don't but if you just take it as low expectations I'm gonna take a scan of the museum and walk through, get my steps and observe like what's here and take note of what caught my eye. And then just go back to those things and give yourself basically no pressure, I think is like a great first step. And I also like to tell people to start in the gift shop. And if you just like walk around the gift shop, they are curating for you things that 
they want to catch your eye on your visit. And if you start there and you're like, hey, this looks interesting, or I want to potentially learn a little bit more about this, or even at the postcard section, uh, it's a way to kind of turn it into a scavenger hunt and Mm -hmm. focus, kind of focus your visit so you don't feel overwhelmed. I love that. And do you recommend people take their kids? Like, do you recommend people start kids young, you know, looking at art and appreciating art and being inspired by it? So, you know, I, first of all, I don't have kids, so I take this for what it is. I, um, I think that kids need to have fun, right? They have to find like levity and they have to be engaged. So one of the things I've been doing on my sabbatical is working with the group foster home called Lydia home in Irving park. And those kids have, um, never been to a museum. Most of them, the parent uh, figures that they've had in their life have told them that that's not a priority. And, um, they haven't gotten, I think a lot of the foundational arts culture that I've had, for example, or maybe you've had. And so trying to take them into the art Institute, I think would be a non-starter, but what I've done instead is try to take art to them. I've been hosting a series of workshops there and um, bringing like classical paintings as coloring books and having them choose what they're interested in and then telling them the story behind the painting and the artist. Like they love Van Gogh because he cut off his ear and mailed to somebody, which I think is so gross. Right. <laughs> but then by default are interested in his paintings. Right. So, um, you know, obviously that's on hold with the quarantine situation, but the intention is then to take them to the museum to find just their painting and keep it like low pressure. This is the one thing that you're going to find and like get to see it real life, which I think is a great way to introduce kids without, you know, making them feel overwhelmed. Totally. I love that idea. I'm thinking back to my first because I was an art history major in college. That me, I mean, that sounds super fancy, but it really just meant that I was in like a big auditorium and I fell asleep because it was dark and they would just like play the slides, you know, and I'd just be like, <laughs> so bored. like so bored, but I, lo- I did like it, but it's just like, I think back to my like early experiences in like high school or middle school or whatever and field trips and it like a museum just feels intimidating. I don't know what it is about it. It's like, it's quiet. You have the guard there. Like, it's just like, everyone seems so serious. Yes. Like, it's it's so, so bizarre to me because yeah. creativity is like the opposite of that, right? It's like the number one block to creativity is fear. And if you mm. are afraid walking into a museum, like how can it possibly inspire you to like be creative? Right. Um, yeah, I agree. And I actually think the people that that curate those exhibits and kind of cultivate museums would be sad to know that. Um, but I think maybe traditionally they've just been so steeped in the traditional ways we've oriented around museums that they forget mm-hmm. that it's actually like a community institution. And there's so much we can do to bring some of the stories to life. Like one example, um, you're an art history major, so you know Matisse. Like I love talking about constraints with the story of Matisse that he got really sick and he was this like amazing painter. That's what brought him joy. And he lost his ability to paint and he could have just given up and nobody would have blamed him for that and like succumbed to depression. But instead he pivoted to using scissors and paper and made the pieces that like all of us, like in modern times know him by. And it's just like a really cool story. And I always think to myself, how amazing it would be to go to a museum and have somebody that could kind of like tell you those stories so you connect to what you're looking at beyond just like the plaque with the facts. Completely. I absolutely love that. I didn't and I did not know that fact. That is so cool. It makes me think about what 
I've decided I can't do because I'm quarantined (laughs) (laughs) and how I can get around it. Right. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. I thought what you said about I want to talk about what you said about fear being the biggest block to creativity. And I think that applies to so many things like do you have any tips or things? I'm sure that you've encountered that in your life. You're a very creative person writing a book. Was there fear when you were creating that? And like, or can you give examples of how you might have um, gotten over that or did it anyway, even though you were still afraid for the, for my listeners? Yeah. So I would say I was so afraid to publish that book that I almost scrapped the entire project. And there were a few reasons for that, but I think the number one thing that I was afraid of was being afraid of being judged and being afraid of being rejected. And I thought about this, especially through the lens of my very traditional kind of elite management consulting career path, where I work with Harvard MBAs and very serious people who I think I believed would not accept this really like off the beaten path, creative passion project of mine, if they were to find out about it. So I really had to take a step back and think about why am I so afraid of being judged or rejected by other people? And I recognized that I was doing something that I think so many of us do, which is that we decide for other people what they're thinking without ever testing that, right? Like I will think about a person and then I will think about what they're thinking about related to me. And then I will, I will think for them and judge me and then shut myself down. And so I think that's something that you just have to stop doing. And the first way that you stop doing it is by ceasing all judgment of others. Like I had to mm. just mm-hmm. stop. Like if, if, I, if I'm going to ask other people to just let my freak flag fly and let me be, then I have to give other people the space to do that too. And so I kind of worked on those in, in tandem over the course of, I don't know, six months to really build the courage to put my book out there. And like, and you are a creative person, right? Like you are... Um, putting yourself out there all the time. And I think anytime you put yourself in the world, you're inviting people's opinions and judgments, but you don't have to accept them. And I think that's another tip, which is that in order to find the people who you really serve, who really resonate with your message, you also have to be willing to repel people. And like, I had to do a lot of work on myself to be okay with that. And as women, I think we want everyone to like love us and like think we're so fun and likable and you know, it's hard for to, to receive negative feedback, but you also don't have to accept it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And if you if you think about it, the people that are most judgmental are usually the people that are extremely self-judging too. Mm-hmm. Like the people that are like really yes. harsh are usually also really harsh on themselves. So I, yeah. I think, was it, Bre- I don't know. I'm going to like quote someone that's not the right quote, but I think Brene Brown said, that most of the time people that are judging you are not creating themselves. Oh. So she's basically like, if you're not in the ring with me creating and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, I don't want to hear it. Right. Like, like, I don't need your opinion. You. Yeah, exactly. And most of the oh. people that are, are very, you know, accepting, like you said, like working on yourself and not judging other people is a great, is a great place to start. Yeah. I love that quote. I think that is the Brene Brown yeah. uh, quote about the ring. There's another one that, um, I need to find it. I'm going to butcher it. But it was like, you will never be judged by somebody doing more than you. Mm. You will only be judged by people doing less. And one of the things I've observed, and I think your obs- your observation about people people's judgment or like what they project onto you is really just a reflection of how they treat themselves. 
I think that, um, that I've observed that there are so many people who kind of succumb to their fears. And I think perfectionism is like this huge fear that people subscribe to. And when I think about myself in my lowest points in life, when I've been the most judgmental, the people around me that I felt like I applied judgment towards, they just triggered this like feeling, how can you do that if I'm over here, like sad and insecure? And channeling that into, instead of judging somebody for that, getting curious and how, how is it that this person has developed this level of confidence and courage to get over all of this? And how can I use that? And I think that's another skill that so many people need. And in the meantime, like when those people come at me, I'm just like, I, you know, wish for you to overcome that (laughs) impulse in yourself. And if you ever want to talk and get some guidance on how to do it, I'm here for you. But in the meantime, like pound sand. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. That's so true. I think often people, you know, you say, you'll hear people say like negative projections. So like, basically, if you see it in somebody, whether it's good or bad, you have it. And it's good and bad, right? Because I can see something and I can say, oh, that person's this way or they're creating this. And, and I know that that's probably something that I do too. Otherwise, I wouldn't be judging it. But I think it also comes from a positive way in that if I see something you that I love, instead of, oh, well, I can never do that, I can never be that, I'm going to judge her, it's actually, I wouldn't be able to see it if it wasn't alive in me. It just maybe hasn't been owned or it hasn't been cultivated or it hasn't been um, worked on. But that doesn't mean that I don't have it because I really do believe if I don't have it, I'm not going to even see it. It's just going to be like, oh, I don't know. That just went right. over my head. So <laughs> I, I love that. Um, I love that thought that like if you see something in somebody else that you really like and you really want and you want to cultivate, you have it. You just haven't taken the time to bring it forward yet. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I love that. So many good things in that. So we could write a whole book on that. It's like how do you you transform your judgment into curiosity? I love that. Like being curious, like, hmm, why do I, why do I, why is this making me so upset? Or why does that, and, and social media is such a good place to start, right? Like with all those accounts that annoy you or that you're just like, I'm just gonna unfollow this person. Imagine if we all sat there and went, Oh, I wonder why that annoys me. Why does she annoy me so much? Or why does this why does this bother me so much? And like get curious about it instead of going right into the judgment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's so real. Yeah. So let's talk about your book. So tell me about the process, like where it started, where the like, you know, the seed was planted, and then kind of take me through the process. We can start there because I don't want to overwhelm your questions, but yeah, that's okay. So um, I mentioned I had been kind of writing a personal blog for years and years, and I have been very, very passionate about this topic that I just kind of clump into life fulfillment. Like how do you tap your potential that you've been given and grow it and use it in a way that's going to create a life that you're proud of living. And I, if I really go deep into my own psyche, I think this all started from, I have a brother who um, has dealt with, you know, drug and alcohol addiction for his entire life. And I think looking at his path, like this very privileged kind of, he's very privileged, has all of the resources in the world. And for whatever reason has just like been on this path of struggle and also hearing these stories of people that are kind of born into the most like dire circumstances and for for some reason 
they're really able to to turn their life into this like magnificent um, life of service that impacts millions of people. And so I've always just been kind of curious about that and also looked at that through my the lens of my own life and went through a period in my mid 20s which I think is a lot of what a lot of people call your classic quarter life crisis where it was like why am I dating this guy? Like why am I living in this city? Like <laughs> what, like why do why am I working this job? And really had to go through this process to work on myself to better understand who I was and what I wanted and what I wanted my life to look like ultimately. So anyway, blogging about all those topics for a long time and um, decided to decided to put it in a book when I started recognizing that there were some key themes or organized around some questions. And it became most obvious to me after I read Bronnie Ware's book, which is called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Have you heard of that or read it? No, I haven't. Mm, you would probably love it just based on this conversation. So Bronnie Ware was an Australian hospice nurse who observed thousands of patients at the end of their life and wrote a book about the five themes that came up again and again and again about regrets they had in their life. And the number one regret just really like spoke to me. And that number one regret was, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to who I am instead of the life that others expected of me. And it just made me realize that like, that's where I was. Like I'm, I've been afraid to really jump all in on some of the things that I believe in because I've been afraid of being judged. And so then I just put those questions that I had observed over my like years of write, reading and writing and distilled them into a book and also included some of like the personal narrative around how I struggled with each one of those questions and what I found to be helpful in kind of answering them for myself. And that's it. That's awesome. I love that. That's that's beautiful. And so does is your book laid out? Do you sort of answer those questions for yourself with within it or how do you how did you lay it out? What was your process of cuz that's a lot. That's like a deep well of information. So yeah. how was that unpacking it? Yes, great question. So um I wanted to write about this from kind of a, a multidisciplinary lens, but also make it very approachable and, and a fun read. Because I'm like, if this is going to resonate with the people who follow my work and also something that they're going to be willing to share, that's going to be valuable. Like I want it to be like almost like long form essay chapters and a short book that has a lot of depth, but it's written in a way that can be, you know, easily consumed. And so like the first chapter is um called who the who the f am i <laughs> oh i <laughs> love all that about, is all about like philosophy right and um the like psychology of identity and philosophy uh and there's a little bit of theology woven in there as well so it just really talks about kind of how you develop an identity and the fluidity of identity and how we have you know like innate worth but a lot of flexibility in in terms of how we uh establish ourselves and what we kind of attach ourselves to in order to communicate our identity. And then, so where do you come to at the end of the book? Like, how do you, without giving it away, because of course I want everyone to read it, but what do you hope people take out of your book? Yes. So 
there, every chapter ends with kind of like a key takeaway and like an activity that you can do to answer the question for yourself, almost like a reflection activity. Oh my gosh, so, I love that. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, I, and it's really mirroring my process, but just kind of distilled into like a more simple way to do it. So you don't have to like read a thousand self-help books on planes for 10 years in order to get there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you a self-help, are you a self-help book junkie? Like I am a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, um, love the quote by Darren Hardy, which is that if you're not improving, you're declining. Mm. <laughs> and I talk a little bit about that in the book that, you know, there's like this uh, stereotype of people being like addicted to self-help that they just can't accept themselves. But I actually think that there's this happy medium of like accepting kind of who you are and your flaws and everything that kind of you, those unchangeables about you, but also kind of committing yourself to ongoing improvement and continuing to make yourself like more valuable to the world. And the way that you do that is by like learning. So I'm all about the self-help. <laughs> I am too. I did, but I think you're right. There is a balance between, um, cause I have found that you can get into that sort of like, Oh, there's something wrong with me kind of feeling after you, if you keep, keep going and keep going and keep going. But I do think there's a balance between like loving yourself where you're at, loving yourself through the process and, and keep, there's a quote in, um, in the program that I took the spiritual psychology, which is, um, healing is the application of love to the places inside that hurt. So it's like, like really keep pouring that on and keep, keep that through the process. But also, like you said, like, if you're not growing and you're not trying to get better, like, what's, what are you doing? You know, like, it's like that, I think, growth, they say growth mindset or fixed mindset. And I do believe they prove that people are happier when you have that sort of growth mindset, as opposed to that, like, this is how it is. This is how I am. This is how the world is. And nothing's going to change. That To me, that's like the worst thing ever. I know. How suffocating would that be? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that there's also this spiritual element of like agency that I think about a lot. And when you think about where we are right now, like your question of the constraints this quarantine is putting on all of us, I think the knee-jerk reaction is fixed mindset. Like this sucks. I wish that we could go back to a month ago or I could just fast forward and have all of this end. And that I think overlooks a couple of things. I think number one, that like every minute and hour and day that we are given is precious, even though it sometimes feels hard to live them. And then number two, like we have agency in our mind with how we kind of approach those moments of our day. And um, I can't imagine just like totally giving up and succumbing to like, this is horrible and never changing and I'm going to bury my head in the sand. Right. And well, it's so easy. I think I vacillated definitely between feeling completely um, overwhelmed and what's going to happen and is this going to be this way forever and life as I know it, you know, has changed. And then intense moments of like gratitude and like, holy cow, like all the things that I've been wanting to accomplish, now I have the time. Like that that's what I came to actually the second week. I, you know, it's like I go back and forth. Like yeah. talk to me tomorrow and I'll be like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, because I like my intentions every year are like, I try to write them out at the beginning of the year and then sort of plan around them. And, you know, a lot of them have been like work on my relationship with my kids, you know, meditate, take time. And constantly those things are getting pushed back for like outward goals, my podcast, my Instagram. Those are like naturally like what I gravitate towards because I can be more successful at those. Right. And so now I feel like the universe is like, well, 
you kept asking and <laughs> here you go. <laughs> here you go. Here's a month, you know, like here's yeah. a full month of April. So yeah. it's interesting. I think when we're like, I think you mentioned this at the beginning about something like when we're thrown out of our comfort zone or we're in a situation, it's a, really an opportunity to kind of set new standards for ourselves, or set new goals or like sort of set away like where I don't know it's a, it is an opportunity I'm choosing to look at it as an opportunity and I encourage other people to do the same um so this is a question I ask everybody um at the end of the interview and it's you can answer it any way you see fit but how do you live your dope ass life oh, good question this is a really hard question <laughs> It can be like a principle that you live by, a quote that you love, um, your your motto, your philosophy. Like yes, okay. Yeah. So I'll give you a. I live my dope ass life with a poem in the back of my mind that my English teacher at eighth grade gave. Oh, I love it! I can't wait. That I, I needed the most. And I think I mentioned I had like a bowl cut, glasses, like a toolbox of art supplies. About to head to high school, and the poem was by E.E. E. Cummings, and I know it by heart because I carried around this little like green paper with ladybug's uh, ladybug border on it for you know all of high school. <laughs> yeah, I love that. To be nobody but yourself in a world that does its best day and night to make you everybody else is to fight the hardest battle any human being can fight and never stop fighting. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love E.E. E. Cummings. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It's a great poem. And it was so, I I don't think that teacher would even remember who I was, but I do a ton of public speaking. And um, anytime I talk to uh, like a college group or a high school group, I give them that poem because I think it's a message that especially now, like we're so connected through social media and constantly referencing other people's lives and judging where we stand in our own realities. Like you just have to internalize that, like be yourself and like, don't have to be like everybody else to be valuable and respected and loved. Oh, I love that so much. That's like basically what my entire brand is. So this is just absolutely perfect. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. Like, I feel like we could talk for hours and maybe we'll have to do this again because there's so much more I want to learn about you. Um, If my listeners want to find you, where's tell them where the best place to find you and to follow you. Yeah. Um, on Instagram, just at Colleen Bordeaux or my website is ColleenBordeaux.com. Awesome. And your book is called, Am I Doing This Right? And where can they find that? Either my Instagram or my website will link to it. It's on Amazon. If you just search, am I doing this right? Awesome. Maybe we should do a giveaway. I think I should do a I giveaway. Love that. With the book. Yes, yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Sure. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank, Thank you, you for so joining fun. me in this weird time. When we're out of this, we're going to get wine because oh, we're going yes. to need to talk more about spiritual psychology. And I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by Dante32.